This is Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. Harriet Tubman is set to replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, with several other American women gracing the backs of new $5 and $10 bills. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu explaining the changes. We have to remember all of our history, the history of the contributions of men and the history of the contributions of women. But compared to the past, these are relatively minor changes. On the eve of the Civil War, for example, the U.S. currency needed a real overhaul. There are, by this point, 10,000 different kinds of money in circulation. Paper money, never mind all the different coins and the rest. Today on Backstory, the changing meaning of money in American history, including the hidden link between the gold standard and white supremacy in the late 19th century. A history of American money coming up on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with my buddy Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian! And my friend Ed Ayers is with us. Hey, Brian. We're going to start today in the spring of 1775 as the Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. War against England was inevitable. And that meant the patriots needed an army to defend themselves. But raising an army cost a lot of money. Congress back then didn't have the power to tax. So they decided to print their own currency, the Continental Dollar. If you held these continental bills in your hands today, a few things would stand out. First, the denominations ranged from one-sixth of a dollar to $80. But the images on the bills were even stranger. They were designed by Benjamin Franklin, and he covered the new currency with birds, plants, and Latin mottos. Take the half-dollar bill which depicted a sundial, the sun moving across the sky around the sundial, the Latin motto, Fugio, I fly, and the English motto, Mind Your Business. This is historian Ben Irvin. The $8 bill depicted a harp with 13 strings, some of them uh, great strings and some of them small strings. On his $6 bill, he depicted a beaver very diligently felling a large tree. Irvin says Franklin wanted the currency to send a clear message to the American people. Franklin believed that visual images had the capacity to make what he called, quote, impressions upon the mind. Mm. In 1779, he explained exactly what he had set out to do with the continental currency. He wrote, quote, put on one side some important proverb of Solomon some pious, moral, prudential, or economical precept, the frequent inculcation of which by seeing it every time one receives a piece of money, might make an impression upon the mind, especially of young persons, and tend to regulate the conduct. So that sundial, combined with the mottos Fujio and Mind Your Business, encouraged the American people to adopt economy and thrift. Time flies, so mind your business. And this persevering beaver represents the American people if they apply themselves and work. The 13 different-sized strings on the harp? Those were the 13 colonies united against Great Britain, strumming in harmony. Now, you might think that putting these symbols on money would be pointless. After all, how often do you sit down and inspect money before spending it? 
But Irvin says colonial Americans were likely to study their new currency because they lived in a world with relatively few printed images. There were no billboards. There weren't buses or cabs streaming by with uh, visual graphics displayed across them. And so because uh, images were so scarce, currency was novel, but also... Because the continental currency explained on its face the value of its terms, the bearers actually had to read it. We know what a $1 bill <laughs> means today. We know what a $5 yeah. bill means today. But in 1775, if I were to hand you a piece of paper, this is from the Continental Congress, Peter. I'd like right. to buy a right. rooster. You would, have to, you would look at it and say, what does this signify? How much is this worth? I have to read it to understand. And while I'm reading it, I am observing this emblem from which I, if Franklin is correct, can take moral instruction. Irvin says Benjamin Franklin deliberately chose images that would give the continental dollars value. Most money in the colonies consisted of silver, copper, and gold coins, which could be traded for other valuable metal. But continental dollars were made of paper. Paper, by its nature, had no intrinsic value, and it was entirely unclear how the bearers of the continental currency would ever be able to redeem them for value. Or or you might say it was unclear where the buck stopped. Absolutely. Franklin had to convince the American people that it would have value, and he did so by trying to convince them that the war was a war they could win and that was a war that would make them profit. In other words, Franklin knew that for money to have worth, it needs to mean something. These are emblems of America's rising glory, the promise of a revolutionary resistance. Americans have been talking a lot about what the selection of Harriet Tubman for the $20 bill really means. So for the rest of the hour today on Backstory, we're going to revisit stories we've told about money over the years, and we'll reflect on the many shifting layers of meaning that money has had in American history. Guys, with all this talk about who gets to be on money, uh, you wonder sometimes what those historical figures would think about being on money. And I'm thinking particularly (laughs) about Ben Franklin. And I asked Ben Irvin, who's the leading expert on the subject, what would Ben Franklin think? I think Franklin would be horrified to find himself on the $100 bill. And here's why. Franklin didn't admire currency that celebrated these heroes. He saw that as a lost opportunity. If Franklin were designing currency today, (laughs) he would create emblems that reminded the people who carried that currency to work hard and ultimately to put their faith in the United States. So what I want to know, guys, does it matter yeah. what historical figures would have thought about being on our money? Hey, it's us. It's our money. No. We can put them on if we want to. Guys, uh, I, I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to put historical figures and new historical figures on money. Money has a history. It's changing. And the people we want to remember and who can speak to us. They change over time, and I think it's time for a shakeup. Yeah, Peter, it's not like your century where there were only seven people in the country. (laughs) Today, if you want to put someone on a bill, you got to move someone out. And so this is Mm. where I think Ben is right, you know, and he's channeling Ben Franklin about emblems. So I think one person 
who just would detest the emblem of the Federal Reserve is Andrew Jackson. So isn't <laughs> it convenient <laughs> that we can move Jackson from the front of the $20 oh, bill oh. to the back of the $20 bill? It's going to make him happy wherever he is because he well, hated bank? banks. He constructed his entire political career in opposition to the banks, especially the U.S. Bank, the Bank of the United States, which – eventually became the Federal Reserve. And there he is, a poster child for the $20 bill. So we conveniently have, if not removed, at least moved to the back of the bus. One person Mm -hmm. making room for, Ed. Harriet Tubman. And what I love about this is Harriet Tubman meets both the needs that Ben Franklin laid out for who should be on our money, instructing us about the value of hard work and the importance of identifying with the nation. So let me tell you about Harriet Tubman. I mean, you've been been reading a lot about her as an image, but not as much about her as a person as we might. Yeah, I don't think of her as a bureaucrat. Yeah, well, (laughs) see, she has a different rationale for being on the money. So let's imagine this. Here's a woman born into slavery, makes herself free through enormous bravery, and then decides that I'm going to use that same bravery to make other people free. I'm mm-hmm. going to go back into slavery, risking all that I have, wow. and help other people find their way to the Underground Railroad to freedom. And she does that time after time. When the Civil War comes, and here's another way the history of the past and the future rhyme, she is an ally of the federal government. The so same she thing. belongs on the bill. Yeah, well, I m- got m- it. Even more than that, because it's during the Civil War that the great campaign that ends up emancipating the enslaved people of the United States is financed by greenbacks. Uh, this is the time that the paper money that we know today is actually created. So I think it's great that Harriet Tubman is going to be on our money. Brian, I think it's good that Jackson remains on the $20 bill because it sets up a kind of dissonant duet that we need to keep listening to. This is not a harmonious song they're singing. This is a big struggle. Some of the biggest struggles in American history are represented right there. Uh, Andrew Jackson, of course, was a great hero of the Democratic Party and of uh, white men, particularly white people in the early republic. And of course, now we associate him with Indian removal. We associate him with racial slavery. And so his reputation is sunk. Uh, And uh, so this is a a story that we need to continue to engage with. But one of the ways to engage with it is to think, how do you get out of a world of removing Indians and enslaving African-Americans? Well, one of the ways is that you fight for freedom. And I think that's what Harriet Tubman says to us. So, Peter, that's eloquent, but I think we're going to run to a problem. Uh, as long as we're using money to mm-hmm. spread the good stories that we the need to hear. That's right. Yeah. What are we going to do when, as people say, we move toward a currency-less culture. Well, we're certainly and, uh, using it less and less. And I, I, I do wonder how much people actually care about physical representation of money today in the digital age. What do you think, Peter? Well, I think the most vulnerable figure on disappearing money is George Washington, because the $1 bill has got to disappear before the other denominations. They've already gotten rid of the one pound note in the UK. And who needs it? It should be changed. But in a way, they're all going. And one day, like postage stamps, like 
CDs and records. They're going to be collector's items, ways to remember the good old days. I do think this is the one bittersweet thing, Peter. You've put your finger on it. We are finally getting around to honoring women and in Tubman and African-American women at the very time that currency is soon to be irrelevant. You know, it's not unlike uh, the controversies about memorials now, monuments. Right. But yeah. I'm pretty sure the 21st century will find other ways to commemorate the important people in our past. And I'm glad we have a broader range of who those people are. Earlier, we heard from Ben Irvin, a historian at the University of Arizona. He's the author of Clothed in Robes of Sovereignty, the Continental Congress, and the People Out of Doors. to turn to a type of currency that you probably haven't handled very much, counterfeit money. Now, most of us assume that the bills in our wallets were printed by the government and are actually worth something. But that wasn't the case in the 1820s. Back then, the federal government didn't even print money. Private banks did. And when we say private banks, we're not talking Bank of America. A lot of these were fly-by-night operations, and each had its own currency designs, which meant there were hundreds of different currencies circulating. That made life a lot harder for merchants and a heck of a lot easier for counterfeiters. And so let's say that you're a storekeeper. This is Stephen Mim, a historian at the University of Georgia. And someone comes in, you don't know who they are. They hand you a bill on say the Bank of Utica. It's a $3 bill. And you wanna know whether it's counterfeit or not. If you were a savvy merchant, you'd whip out a little book called a counterfeit detector. <laughs> it supposedly listed every single banknote in circulation and explained the difference between good notes and bad ones. So you'd look up that Bank of Utica $3 bill. And, of course, it gives you this endlessly bewildering description about how in the counterfeit, the horse looks vaguely suspicious, whereas in the genuine, it doesn't. It's a guilty horse. <laughs> it's a guilty horse. I'm serious. A lot of this is deeply subjective, obviously. And uh, hopefully that will help you determine whether or not it's uh, counterfeit or not. Sales of these books were booming in the early 19th century. And that's because counterfeiting was booming. As much as 30% of the money in some parts of the country was fake. Nowadays, that number is just a fraction of a percentage point. Now, as we mentioned, this was a time when private banks were popping up all over the place, each issuing its own money. Now, their banknotes were basically IOUs, the idea being that if you ended up with one of them, you could take it to the bank and redeem it for gold or silver coins. Problem was, a lot of the new banks were totally unreliable. There was hardly any government regulation, so many simply churned out as much cash as they wanted, even if they didn't have reserves to back it up, which meant that even real banknotes could turn out to be worthless. And this cuts to the core of what money fundamentally is for us on a, on a very deep, almost epistemological level. What is money? Money is something that can pass and, and function as money. That's almost like a circular argument, but... Money derives its value from its, its ability to move from one place to another and facilitate transfers. 
And as long as it performs that function, well, no one is really, you know, out. What you're suggesting, which is very distressing to me, Steve, is that the distinction between good and bad is sometimes hard to establish. Right. And the counterfeiters, of course, again, rhetorically uh, make hay of this when people attack them or even put them on trial. They're not beyond saying that what they were doing, printing money, was really no different than what the bankers were doing. But in fact, in some respects, was more honest, particularly when you put a counterfeiter side by side with a banker who claimed that he had money in the bank to redeem his notes. At least the counterfeiters acknowledged that there wasn't anything backing their <laughs> notes. Right. And at the same time, people who were on the other side of the equation who hated banks, not counterfeiters, but just ordinary working men and women, looked at banks and said, look, what you're doing is, is really – effectively counterfeiting. You're setting up these corporations. You're issuing money. You have no intention of redeeming it. And in fact, you seem to have no capacity to redeem it either. And so you're really just a counterfeiter operating with legal sanction. Steve, I want to press you hard on how you really feel about counterfeiters after having done all this work and written this excellent book. Uh, I think you might be a little soft on them. Is that a fair charge? I think um, <laughs> the counterfeiters are – it's very easy to be sympathetic to them or at the very least taken with their exploits. The one thing though that I think sometimes gets lost when people talk about counterfeit money, they claim that it's a victimless crime and that's not true. The counterfeit money that moves in circulation through the economy eventually stops. It almost invariably stops not at a bank – but with someone who was the least knowledgeable person about money and was the one left right. holding the bag. Right. And they're yeah. the person who is most likely to go to jail. And if you look at the actual convictions of people accused and, and, and tried for counterfeiting or passing counterfeit notes, it's almost invariably the low-level poor people, many of them immigrants, who sometimes couldn't read, who end up getting the shaft, getting left holding the bag. Yeah, this is, this is a good point. This is the classic case of uh, caveat and right. buyer beware. Uh, and a lot of people are not capable of that kind of vigilance to know what they're buying. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're hitting on something actually very important, which is that in today's climate of free market fundamentalism, there is inevitably the claim that the market will sort things out. But this period and arguably more recently in American history as in the last decade – I think shows that just as much as, as one person may be far more equipped to wade through a mortgage document several hundred pages long, uh, people were more equipped to, to, to discern the differences between money at this time. And that was not their fault. That was not, you know, coming off the boat from Ireland should not be, be what ultimately right. lands you in jail. So, uh, Steve, let me ask, uh, how would you explain the end of this era how is it that we now do trust our currency uh, and uh, that we're not worried constantly about the money supply? So the answer to that question uh, comes with the Civil War. The Civil War is mm -hmm. like the deus ex machina. It's the thing that, that transforms so many things in American history. Yeah, Ed Ayers would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it transforms the money <laughs> supply too. 
And uh, civil war comes. We all know that wars have to be financed as well as fought. And the North almost immediately runs into a crisis of financing. And while it ultimately pays a lot of the bills with bonds and taxes, it also pays the bills with a fiat currency known as the greenback. Mm -hmm. And this right. is a note that is worth what it's worth because the government says it's worth that. Yeah. It's legal wow. tender. These notes offer an opportunity of unimaginable proportions for counterfeiters who have been preying on small state charter banks, but now have the opportunity to prey on, on the biggest bank of all, the federal government. And of all course, right. they swing into action, the counterfeiters, and they begin counterfeiting them. And this would be fine, except that they are now doing something more than preying on private corporations. They are preying upon the state, right. a state which is actually threatened in its own survival. It has to win this war. And as a consequence, counterfeiting becomes deemed very quickly an immense threat because if the money supply, which is already viewed a little bit skeptically because it's fiat currency, mm -hmm. uh, is counterfeited, it's a disaster. And so the federal government gets anxious about this and uh, they basically get an appropriation to create something that becomes known very quickly as the United States Secret Service, which is wow. not about protecting the president. Obviously, Lincoln would have benefited from protection. <laughs> yeah, uh, you might say it's that. very strange to think that from 1865 to 1900, the Secret Service did not protect presidents, but it did protect the currency, and it did so uh, phenomenally well. You're now painting a picture of the solution to the counterfeiting is the emergence for the first time of an effective federal state where it matters most in the money supply. And uh, you have a new infrastructure, to some extent clandestine, covert, dedicated to this war against traitors, against American sovereignty, counterfeiters. Now it's no longer folk heroes, no longer a kind of a shadow extension of the economy. Uh, now the boundary between what's legal and what's not is bright and clear. That's right. And it is ruthless. It becomes known in, in one journalist's phrasing as a, as a gigantic invisible machine, a kind of surveillance state dedicated to crushing these people who dared insult the majesty of, of this newly reinvigorated state. That's Stephen Mim, an historian at the University of Georgia. He's the author of A Nation of Counterfeiters, Capitalism, Con Men, and the Making of the United States. Throughout much of U.S. history, gold has been, well, the gold standard when it comes to money. The idea was that gold had intrinsic value, natural value. Some people argued that God had intended gold to be money, just as he'd intended coal to be fuel. Often they would talk about um, a kind of evolutionary development in the history of money, where primitive peoples used base metals for money, copper or bronze, or iron tokens, and then they evolved towards gold. This is historian Mike O'Malley. He's written about how, in the first half of the 19th century, the U.S. government only issued money in the form of gold and silver coins. Private banks did issue paper money, but the idea was that you could always take that paper money 
to the bank and redeem it for specie, hard currency. Then, during the Civil War, the U.S. government did something radical. It began issuing paper money called greenbacks to finance the war effort. Greenbacks weren't backed up by gold or silver in a vault somewhere. Instead, their value came from the fact that the government said they had value. Michael Malley says this new approach to money horrified a lot of people because it raised a troubling question. Is value intrinsic or is value created by the government? One of the interesting things about the gold debate is that it's, as you said, it's based on the idea that gold has some sort of natural intrinsic value. It just is valuable. In that way, it's very similar to the way some people argued about racial difference, that there was a natural intrinsic racial difference. There was an intrinsic superiority to white people. There was an intrinsic inferiority to black people. And the rhetoric is often very similar in terms of a natural hierarchy, the interest in finding a natural hierarchy. Are there any really specific examples of that overlap in rhetoric that that you can tell us about? Yeah, the most interesting, I think, to me was that when Lincoln announced or decided eventually that he would allow black men to enlist in the Union Army to become soldiers, it's roughly the same time as greenbacks enter into circulation. Right. And Lincoln's opponents particularly frequently compare greenbacks to Negro soldiers, this term they use. That you got you to explain that. No, it made no sense to me either. What does a black man in uniform have to do with a paper dollar? And I think the argument that you see, you see it in minstrel show songs, you see it in campaign songs, you see it in editorials is that black men in uniform were being artificially endowed with a value they didn't naturally possess. By the union, no no less. Right, by the union. The union was endowing them with a value or claiming they had a value they didn't actually possess. In the same way, it was calling paper money and endowing paper with a value it didn't naturally possess. Now, when I think of the, the people who are obsessed with gold, I think of a bunch of bankers in New York or New England. I don't think of uh, Confederates, per se. How much overlap was there between the folks who wanted to see essential value in their money and the folks who claimed there was some essence to race? This is a very strong affinity. The people in the North who supported greenbacks also tended to support racial equality. It's very clear the radical Republicans, people like Thaddeus Stevens or Ben Butler, strongly favored the idea that equality was a social condition. If you declare people equal, they become equal. So look, uh, we don't get credit cards till the 20th century, but are you arguing that there was a plastic moment, so to speak, from the Civil War through Reconstruction that really provided openings for quite different and innovative ways of seeing both the value of money and race. Yes, I do think that there is a tradition in American life long before the civil rights movement of the 50s that gives room for constructing racial equality. So I think as a result, Americans are willing to reconsider citizenship in pretty radical ways. And you see that in the way, say, Thomas Nast will draw black Americans. He'll draw them with dignity, uh, standing upright with classical features or semi-classical features. Uh, He sees them as worthy citizens and also as having earned citizenship, being entitled to it. And that moment is powerful. It's not clear how much that represents majority sentiment or how deep it goes, but I think it's overwhelmingly there. And it persists in some aspects of the debate about money. I would imagine that Reconstruction was in many ways the heyday for bringing these arguments together. I mean, after all, you had the Fed, you had federal troops 
occupying the South. The greenback was still in circulation, and you had real uh, aggressive efforts on the part of the radical Republicans uh, to make African Americans whole as citizens. Yes, that's where you see really pronounced um, racialization of the money language. And I'll, I could give an example from the journalist James Pike talking about South Carolina. Um, the white race rules, he says, by virtue of its intrinsic strength, while the newly freed Negroes rule South Carolina by means of an alien and borrowed authority. It is not the rule of intrinsic strength. It is the compulsive power of federal authority in Washington. Under this rule, he says, the vote of any Negro in the state is worth as much as a South Carolina bond. So Pike is saying that the government of South Carolina, that the votes of black people are equal in value to its financial products, that is, they're worthless. They're, they aren't backed by any intrinsic value or any intrinsic strength. They're pure paper pronouncements. Mike, I want to ask you a question as we move forward. The gold standard wins out. America restores a dollar linked to gold in the early 1870s. But what becomes of attitudes towards race once America has its money restored to the essential natural state of mm -hmm. things with gold backing up the dollar? I just think it's unescapable that the moment of the greenbacks, the moment of interest in greenbacks, is relatively fleeting. And the restoration of the gold standard is very closely accompanied by the restoration of white supremacy in the governments of the former Confederacy. It's, it's in fact referred to as redemption, which is the term you would use if you took a piece of paper money and got gold in return. The people who overturned the rule of reconstruction in the South called themselves redeemers. And that's, I don't think that's the redemption of Christ, that's redeeming paper money. So the return to the gold standard was very much a return to, people would say, the natural hierarchy of things. Now, we have an African-American president now, and he's not the head of the Federal Reserve, but he certainly has a lot to say about fiscal policy. What are the connections drawn today between race and money uh, and the essence of money and the essence of race. As soon as Obama's elected, there's an enormous boom in the price of gold. The price of gold shoots up. And more than that, you see right-wing talk shows, radio shows, TV programs, gold, advertisements for gold are the major uh, source of income. They're a major source of revenue. And it's clear that for a lot of people, Obama represents a kind of social inflation, I think. He's the the wrong kind of person. But Mike, what about all the talk about post-racialism? What about all the talk about endless opportunity? Doesn't that offset or balance whatever lingering essentialist notions there are out there? I think the thing that makes American society dynamic and interesting and energetic and productive is the oscillation between the idea that we can be whoever we want and the dream of knowing who we really are, of having stable identities. You can't resolve that tension. You can't. Um, you know, the great thing about the United States is its dynamic economy. It's an economy that enables a lot of self-transformation for a lot of people. Uh, you can overstate that, but the principle that no one need be confined by the circumstances of their birth is a central and very important principle of American life. It's a little nervous-making, too, though, because if there is no, if no one's confined by the circumstances right. of their birth, if anybody can be whatever they want, then there's no natural hierarchy and there's no substance to what people become. 
Right. So the idea that gold is the store of real value is very comforting to a lot of people. And the idea that nature has installed a hierarchy in types of persons is very comforting. Michael O'Malley is a historian at George Mason University. His book is Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America. We've received a number of interesting questions and comments on our website, and as always, we've invited a few of the people who posted there to join us on the phone. We've got Eric on the line with us from Seattle. Eric, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. So my question is about collecting or hoarding money versus using it. Back when I was a child in the 70s, I remember being encouraged to clean out drawers of old coins that these coins were costing the U.S. huge amounts of money, and yet <laughs> now we have the government producing like these state quarters that encourage collecting. And I realized that for currency to be successful, the government needs us to both want it and yet spend it, yeah. and that that's a really delicate balance. So Eric is asking us to psychoanalyze the government because the government <laughs> is deeply conflicted, <laughs> giving us conflicting cues about what to do with it, Right. Right, right. And yeah. What's happened when that balance is not there? Mm-hmm. Brian? Well, Eric, I got to tell you, for the most part, the government wants us to spend that money. It is true that they like to put pretty engravings on bills and coins so that we will appreciate the stature of the government. And so those coins will appreciate in value. <laughs> and so those coins will appreciate. But most of the hoarding has been done really in opposition to the government's uh, best advice. I remember uh, when my dad started hoarding JFK, I think they were half dollars. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because yeah. they oh, were yeah. going to reduce the amount of silver content. Now, my dad was in the jewelry business. He knew what silver was worth. And I still remember where he hid those bags of silver dollars. Lyndon Johnson didn't like that. Lyndon Johnson made a statement. To your father. To my father and millions of other and millions of other fellow Americans. Don't think you can hoard these because the government owns a lot of silver and we're going to flood the market with that silver for you hoarders out there. Now, I don't think Lyndon Johnson ever did that. But basically, the government's position is that money should circulate because circulation helps the economy. Mm. I do think it's a good way to get children feeling guilty and conflicted about money, though, to say. <laughs> if those pennies in your penny bank are slowing down the economy, you're, you're taking those away. But, you know, it's uh, emblematic of a larger dynamic anxiety that we hear save, but don't save so much that you're bringing down the economy. Spend. Go out and go into debt. Buy that new car. Don't wait. So uh, what I need to know, Eric, is what did you do? do you, are you one of those people that has huge <laughs> bags of pennies stuck around the corners of your I, home? I'm a little bit of a collector, but I don't think I go quite so far as hoarding. Now, I wonder if you could t talk to us a little bit about what is it that the coins mean to you? I and mean, have you talked to your therapist about it? <laughs> <laughs> and do you pay him in pennies? Well, I mean, I think that Coins especially, I mean, they do have a tie to history from the old Lady Liberty, you know, half mm. pennies to the 
um, Indian Head Scents and the Buffalo Nickels. Yeah. You know, I was born um, after JFK was assassinated, but there were those half dollars that did still have a little bit of silver, and I remember them being in circulation, but then going away. Yeah, because my father scooped them all up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I hear you saying, Eric, is that the coins not only reflect the moment in which they're created, yeah. but they're a very self-conscious reflection of American history. It's one of the few ways that we remind ourselves that the country had a yeah. history, that, that there used to be something before today. So, Eric, uh, one last question. we got to figure you out a little bit. You collect. Do you save, too, or is this a zero-sum I... game? If you collect, you don't save, because you're certainly not going to cash in on that collection. Well, I guess I do save as well. Uh-huh. But I also have recognized the value of what I collected when I was younger, and it sort of have it as a possible something that if I needed it, I could ah, fall back yeah. on. You're, you're an investor. We're going to call you a prudent sentimentalist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks very much for calling, Eric. It's Thank been great you. talking with you. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you, Eric. Bye-bye. We're going to turn now to the populist movement in the late 19th century. That's when farmers and workers in the Midwest and South rejected the Democratic and Republican parties and formed their own, the People's Party. One of their signature issues was monetary policy, especially the place of silver in the economy. Now, this is hard to explain, so we're fortunate that back in the 1960s, a teacher named Henry Littlefield had a brilliant idea. He would use The Wizard of Oz, the novel, to explain populism to his glassy-eyed summer school students. Littlefield saw all kinds of connections between Oz and the populist faith in silver. Now, to be honest, it's not clear that L. Frank Baum actually meant his children's book to be a populist parable, but that's beside the point. As Backstory producer Kelly Jones found out, The Wizard of Oz is still a helpful tool to explain the ins and outs of populist economics. Once you start looking for parallels, uh, it just becomes a matter of seek and ye shall find. This is Ranjit Degay, an economic historian at SUNY Oswego, who wrote a book comparing populism and The Wizard of Oz. Parallels between the two begin on the very first page of the novel, in bleak and dismal Kansas. When Dorothy stood in the doorway and looked around, she could see nothing but the great gray prairie on every side. This was the scene in the late 1800s. The U.S. had experienced three economic depressions in quick succession, and Western farmers suffered the most. The sun had baked the plowed land into a gray mass, with little cracks running through it. Drought and pests destroyed farmers' crops. What they could produce wasn't very valuable, because overproduction in the East brought prices down nationwide. To top it off, farmers were deeply in debt. They took out loans to buy land and equipment when times were good and at fixed rates. But when the prices fell, the national interest rate plummeted. Farmers' rates didn't change, though, so their debts soared. They're paying back those loans in dollars that are worth a lot more than the ones that they borrowed and spent already. Long economic story short, depression and deflation tore through the nation like, well, a twister. 
farmers and other members of the emerging populist movement thought that if they could just reverse the deflation, the economy would recover. If money just were you know, showered from above from a helicopter, people would scoop up all that money and they would try to spend it, and that would raise the price of just about everything. That would bring you an inflation. One 19th century version of a money-showering helicopter was what populists called the free coinage of silver. Yeah, let's talk about silver. In the 1880s and 1890s, the basic unit of currency was gold. An ounce of gold, actually, or an Oz of gold, abbreviated, if you will. Anyway, the country was on the gold standard, but gold was scarce. Populists figured a second monetary standard, backed by a more plentiful raw material, would expand the money supply. So they called on the government to start coining silver as well as gold. Which leads us to the next big parallel between Oz and the populist movement, the magic of bimetallism. Dorothy gets these silver shoes from the Wicked Witch of the East. That's right, silver shoes. No ruby slippers here. Those only appear in the movie. Dorothy, who represents the average American, has to walk to the political seat of Oz via that yellow brick road. That's the only way she can get back to Kansas. Or end deflation. So silver shoes on a yellow gold road. That's bimetallism. That's having gold and silver together. And they're more powerful together than they would be individually as a monetary standard. But bimetallism had its critics, embodied by one of the Wicked Witches. The Wicked Witch of the East represents Wall Street and, you know, kind of these evil, soulless uh, corporate interests uh, who the farmers definitely thought of as their enemy. That's because Wall Street rejected bimetallism as a reckless solution that would make prices spike uncontrollably. In the story, Western farmers take the shape of the scarecrow, duped into thinking he doesn't have a brain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. The Tin Man stands for industrial workers who faced an almost 25% unemployment rate in the early 1890s. I only had a heart. I were king of the forest. And then there's the Lion, who, coincidentally, rhymes with William Jennings Bryan. The politician who ran for president three times, most notably in 1896, on a platform of free coinage of silver and really became identified with that movement. Brian was a Democrat, not a populist. But the populists nominated him for president because he was an ardent silverite. So lions are known for their roar. Brian was known for his oratory. He gave a speech at the Democratic Convention in 1896, uh, which is known as the Cross of Gold speech. We will fight them to the uttermost. He mostly talked about how the gold standard was just crippling this economony, and he famously concluded, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Today, one way the government fights deflation is by printing more money. But that was a radical idea in the 1890s, too radical for populists. They were deeply suspicious of fiat money, or currency that isn't tied to something physical like precious metals. So back in Oz and marching together under the banner of bimetallism, Dorothy and her crew set off for the Emerald City, which, in the book, isn't actually emerald. The wizard forces everyone to wear green sunglasses, which give the all-white city a green tinge. Uh, if you take off the glasses, then suddenly it's no longer emerald. Just like our fiat money of the 19th century, 
If everybody just decides, you know, these are pieces of paper, these don't really represent real value, then suddenly, you know, our monetary system breaks down. In the end, our bimetallic heroine kills the Wicked Witch of the West, who stands for the drought, with a bucket of water, thus bringing the crops back to life. The wizard takes off, leaving Oz in the hands of Dorothy's capable companions. And, you know, it's a happy ending. We don't see exactly how they do ruling the land of Oz, but you're led to expect that it's going to be good. Except that's the Hollywood ending. The book and the movement didn't turn out so well. Deflation finally ended after the 1896 election with huge discoveries of gold in Alaska and the Yukon. So the free silver issue pretty much disappears with the discovery of all this gold. And it's barely heard from again. In the book, as Dorothy flies home to Kansas, her silver shoes slip off her feet and are lost forever in the desert. After losing the presidency to Republican William McKinley, William Jennings Bryan toned down his passion for silver. Even when Bryan runs in 1900, it's not a very compelling issue. He still talks about it, but it doesn't get a lot of traction. Mm. He lost his roar. (laughs) Sorry. Or he had to roar about something else. (laughs) He was still roaring, but I don't know how many people were listening. Silver and gold. Backstory producer Kelly Jones brought us that story. She had help from Renzit Decay, a professor of economic history at the State University of New York, Oswego, and the author of The Historian's Wizard of Oz, reading L. Frank Baum's classic as a political and monetary allegory. Over the next decade, the bills in your wallet will start to look pretty different. Not only will Harriet Tubman be added to the front of the $20 bill and Andrew Jackson placed on the back, but the backs of other bills will include prominent women and civil rights figures not seen on currency before. The last major redesign of the American dollar was in the 1990s. In an effort to stay one step ahead of the counterfeiters, the federal government redesigned nearly all of its currency. Every bill except the $1 bill got a facelift. Back in 2014, I talked to Thomas Hipschen, who worked for the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing. He was the lead engraver of the 1990s currency redesign. Now, if you remember what our money used to look like before 1996, you might have the same question that I had. What's with the bigger and bigger heads? I think the size of the portraits are related to the idea that people are hardwired to look at people's faces. And uh, a, a larger portrait gets people to look at it more. Why does that matter? Well, if you don't look at the currency, you'll never know whether it's counterfeit or not. It's, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it's, it's important that's, uh, that people look at it. And it also it gives a... you a sense of trust. You know, you look in someone in the eye, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, that's kind of interesting, don't you think? Now, I have to confess that, you know, I don't really look at my money very carefully. Have you ever observed anybody looking at their money? Have you ever oh, pushed a ten dollar bill into someone's hand and said, "Wow, this yeah. is beautiful"? If you try to spend a hundred dollar bill at a flea market, they're going to look at it. Yes, I agree. Hey, I got to ask you, why no redesigned one dollar bill? Um, we're prohibited from redesigning the one dollar bill uh, by Congress. Why is that? Well. It, 
there are 10 zillion vending machines, and the vending machine uh, lobby is very large. Um, this came down when we were doing all the redesigns. You know, we, we threw the, the $1 bill into it, and uh, we were doing some redesigns for that, and I even engraved the portrait for it. But then it suddenly came down and said, hey, no, we can't be working on the $1 bill. That's, that's not allowed. And we went, what? <laughs> now, let's talk about a specific bill uh, I understand there's some controversy around the portrait of Alexander Hamilton. The Hamilton portrait was something that uh, we had uh, just in-house. It had been used on a postage stamp or something, and uh, it, it, didn't, it had nothing to do with the historical appearance of Hamilton, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, and my friend Ken Kipperman did the uh, engraving of that portrait, and everybody loved it right away. They said, who knew he was such a hunk, you know? Yeah, well, that's exactly the controversy. I mean, people are kind of accusing it of maybe... A little Botox here, a little plastic yeah, surgery it's fabrication. There. Maybe Photoshop. Maybe Photoshop. Well, no played Photoshop. A role. Uh, it was uh, uh, <laughs> actually someone had taken a photograph of an old painting, and uh, one of our modelers in house had uh, done a little bit of painting over the top of this uh, old photograph, and uh, and then the engraving was done from that. So yeah, it was it was modified. <laughs> so our listeners don't have a lot of money, but. What would you tell them to do the next time they take a $20 bill out of their wallet? Well, I'll tell you, when I, I first started at the, uh, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, uh, the plate printers would, uh, would take any new note they got and they would put a little tear in it because it was their job to make all the new notes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, hear that, Backstory yeah. listeners? A little, a little tear in the money. It's a full employment program. Yeah. Thomas Hipchin is the former lead portrait engraver at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing at the U.S. Treasury. That's going to do it for us today. And as it always does, the conversation will continue in the digital realm. We'd love to hear your thoughts about today's show. Leave us a comment at BackstoryRadio.org. Don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Jess Angabretson, Kelly Jones, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, and Jesse Dukes, with help from Emily Charnock. Our staff also includes Bridget McCarthy and Emily Gaddick. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor, with help from Brianna Azar. Melissa Gismondi helps with research. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.